Well, Fred, I, uh, I, first of all, let me say, I, in the history of our show, you're one of the best storytellers that we've ever featured on here. And I uh, have been wanting to find a way to talk with you again to get more you know, of your good stories. This, this felt like the right move, because I know that you guys came from, you and Rick O'Case, they came from a similar scene, similar time, probably knew each other, probably worked together. What is your history with Rick and the band, and the cars, I guess, specifically? know him uh well i did know rick uh we knew each other we weren't friends we didn't go to each other's house and that sort of thing we knew each other professionally just from seeing us you know each other in clubs and that sort of thing um we did in the atlantics record at their recording studio synchro sound in, in boston the first time i met rick was in 1977 i'm gonna say I was in a band called Third Rail, which was a popular Boston band at the time, and the Cars had just come back from England from recording their first album, and Rick was going to produce two songs for Third Rail. Uh, now, I had had a falling out with the guy who was the leader of Third Rail, and I had quit the band, but I was playing out whatever shows had already been booked. I didn't want to leave them high and dry. So Rick came down to the rehearsal studio, and that was the first time I met him. And uh, he was very congenial, uh, really nice guy, very funny. And he came in, he listened to the band, and then he asked me to step outside with him, which I did, and asked me if I'd consider doing the recordings, because I wasn't going to do that. And I passed on it. I said no, which, uh, as you might well imagine, I regret now. But we had a long conversation outside, and, you know, uh, it was really kind of cool because the cars had now hit the aspiration that all of us had. You know, they mm -hmm. had gotten a great manager. They had uh, a really cooking band. They had gotten a great record deal. They had just come back from London from recording an album with Roy Thomas Baker. And it was just wonderful to see the excitement in somebody who had gone from where I was yeah. to there, you yeah. know. Um, yeah. So that was the first time I, I met him, and uh, we had an interaction. Do you have, and whether you realized it then or just after the fact, what do you think was the magic of Rick specifically? What was he... What was he especially good at? What made him special on the scene? Why the cars? You know what I mean? What stood out? Well, here's the deal. The year prior to that, or it might have been actually in 1977, Boston hit with their album, The Band Boston. Yeah. And when that album came out and exploded, everybody in the local music scene looked at each other and said, who the heck are these guys? Because <laughs> they, they weren't a local band. They mean, I mean, Tom Schultz had played in cover bands around town, but he wasn't part of the original scene. He had done all of this recording on his own. Yeah. When the Cars came out, in the music scene in Boston, which was a very vibrant music scene, there was life before the Cars, and then there was life after the Cars, because really? the Cars hit like a nuclear bomb. They just appeared, and, and everybody knew who they were, because prior to the Cars, uh, Rick and Ben Orr and uh, Elliot Easton were in a band called Captain Swing, which uh, was around for a little while. Uh, I saw Captain Swing play, and um, they did a, a, a very good thing when they when they morphed into the cars because Captain Swing wasn't nearly as good as the cars. So Rick ended up kind of, I think, with a vision of what they should do musically, but at the same time he wanted them to be kind of a democratic band where everybody is plugging in. I just think 
he is a musician who went through a lot of different stages of his career, and he ended up in a place where he began writing these songs, and he was sort of amalgamating different styles from uh, different types of music, and it all worked. It all just came together. It was the right band for the right time. I have a funny story about, I knew David Robinson, their drummer, uh, pretty well. I met him originally when he was in the Modern Lovers with Jonathan Richmond. Uh-huh. And um, I was <laughs> I was going to be putting together a new band, and I was walking down Beacon Street in Boston going towards Kenmore Square. He was walking the other way, and I bumped into him, and we said, oh, hi, and we were talking. And I pitched him on playing drums in this band I wanted to put together. And he said, no, no, I just joined a new band. And I said, uh, I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, these guys, just uh, some of them were in Captain Swing. He said, uh, you know, uh, we have a, a new keyboard player. And, uh, and, he, and he said, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to, I'm saying, no, no, David, you know, uh-huh. we, we, we could really do good things together. He would say, no, 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 you don't understand. We, we have a great manager. Uh, we have some good material. We have some support. You know, he said, it looks good. And I said, well, what's the name of the band? And he said, the cars and i said i don't really like that name <laughs> and he said he said oh i came up with it oh really <laughs> yeah yeah and uh and so i said well you know and of course um again that's another situation where oh. i i put my foot squarely in my mouth uh but um you know david was a, a designer an artist he did all of their album covers oh i didn't know that yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, very talented guy, you know. Okay. So, uh, so anyway, that's that's my funny story about that. Uh, so that was right. the that was before they had ever played a gig, and right. then when they pl- they played the first gig, I think was New Year's Eve in 1977, and then they when they finally came into Boston and played at the Rat, I, if memory serves, they played like three or four nights in a row at huh. the Rat. And it was just mayhem. I mean, everybody really? was talking about the cars. That was oh, that was wow. all anybody was talking about. So let me so, ask you. I mean, I think if you look, the cars, their legacy is really around, I don't know if it would be creating or maybe perfecting what became New Wave, you know? They were, the ba- they were sort of ground zero for bands that were rock bands, but they were incorporating synthesizers and sort of this futuristic sound almost, you know? No one. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, they're really the the template for that. What what said that? Was that a sound that was happening around the Boston area that they just happened to perfect and become popular? Or do you think that was something that maybe Roy Thomas Baker worked with them on to? Because there's really there was no one else that sounded quite like that at that time. You know what I mean? No, it, they that wasn't a sound around Boston. That was completely unique to them. Huh. And, I mean, people had synthesizers in bands, and people sure. obviously had guitars and drums in bands, but nothing sounded like that. Um, yeah. And it, actually, if you go on to YouTube, they made a nine-song demo in the beginning of 1978 um, that bought them, eventually got them their record deal with Electra Records. And... That the recordings of that are actually on YouTube. Uh, oh, if you go on and, and look okay. up just what I needed demo, uh, okay. or my best friend's girl demo, and you can listen to the kind of the raw versions of these songs, and they're about ninety percent there. Uh, oh. So Roy Thomas Baker took them and polished them, and made them sound really huge. Uh, 
and uh, I think he made um, some suggestions about adding this or that here or there, but uh-huh. believe me, 90% of it was locked in place. And okay. I think one of the things about the cars is, as I said earlier, there were an amalgamation of sounds. They yeah. they they took, you know, a synthesizer, but they didn't go craft work with it. They yeah, they exactly. they said, well, okay, we're going to integrate this into into guitars and yeah. drums. And they they just came up with something that no one else was doing, and right. uh, and it was the perfect sound for that time. It was, yeah. And so, I mean, think about all the bands that they influenced. All the, you know, the Knack and Greg Kinn and all those kind of skinny tie bands that were coming out around that time, you know, trying to merge the synthesizers with the guitars. Those guys perfected it first, really. Um, did you follow them or keep in tabs on them or whatever as they continue to get huge with like Heartbeat City and uh, Magic and you might think, were you, did you ever, ever talk or, or correspond with any of those guys ever again? Well, I did for a little while. I mean, I I really didn't, you know, I mean, we we all knew each other from being in the scene. David was the only guy who I really would see and we'd sit down and have a drink, that kind of thing. No, the short answer is no. They, they, um, you know, we we saw each other in and out, but uh, they weren't. I was, at the time they broke, I was married and I had two small kids. So my whole life was a lot different than a lot of theirs. I couldn't devote the time to it uh, in terms of other than playing out and rehearsing. I couldn't really devote a lot of time to being there. So, uh, no, I I didn't really. uh, David and I kept in touch for a while. We were back and forth on the phone here and there and that kind of thing. And obviously during when the cars were together, uh, I would see him. I was in... We the Atlantics went into Synchrosound, their recording studio on Newbury Street in Boston to record. We did four songs, which I think were the best recordings we ever did. And um, they, you know, David would they the Synchrosound was I think their version of the Factory, Andy uh, Warhol's Factory in New York. They had a big lounge area. It was very welcoming, very comforting. Like I remember being in there one day with David and uh, talking to him, and he was showing me album cover art that he was working on. And um, uh, he said to me, he said, uh, oh, I said, what are you doing, like, on Saturday? I said, I don't know, nothing specific. Why? He said, well, come on in around 2. I said, okay, why? He said, because Ringo is coming in. He said, oh. Ringo is, yeah, oh, yeah. He said, he's got to look at the studio. He might do some recording here. We're trying to get him to record here. I said, okay, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, but then I got a call from him on Friday and Ringo had canceled. So oh, I, I missed, my, missed my chance to see Ringo. But that was the kind of place it was. You never knew yeah. who you were going to run into. I had another person tell me they dropped by there one day randomly and uh, Iggy Pop is sitting on the couch writing lyrics. No, no way. So, yeah, so that was the kind of place it was. It was a really cool place in general, you know, to yeah. to, to be in and to... Uh, uh, and to hang around in. So. Yeah, okay. Why do you think Rick and the cars mean so much to the city of Boston? Well, I think that there are a lot of reasons. The obvious one, first of all, is that they made it so big, and they were yeah. ambassadors for Boston. They went out into the world, and, and uh, you know, their music became a mainstay in American culture. We hear it now in TV commercials and they use it in movies and TV shows. That's the obvious thing. But the other thing is that they they never forgot where they were from, you know. Rick specifically 
was a, a really uh, ambitious producer. He produced a lot of yeah. different people, uh, and he produced a lot of national artists. You know, uh, Romeo Void and No Doubt and Bad Brains, and yeah. uh, and of course, famously, he he really got behind Suicide. Uh, yeah. But he also did that with local bands. Mm. You know, other than the band Third Rail that that I was in. He he produced a Boston band called the Nervous Eaters, which were a really big Boston band who still play out. And he oh. the demo he produced for them got them a deal, um, okay. you know. And he produced uh, the New Models, which were a really popular band. Peter wow. Dayton, who was a big uh, artist in Boston, and they put back into the musical community what they got out of it. Uh, and uh, they never they never lost the accessibility factor if anybody saw one of them walking down the street they were always pleasant and they were always happy to sign an autograph or do whatever you know so they i i think there was just kind of a love affair between the band and, and the city yeah okay when you uh when you look back i sort of touched on this earlier but what do you think the legacy of the cars is do you think they still matter do you think they still influence people yeah i do I think that their music, one of the things to me personally that is brilliant about the music itself is it's kind of timeless because it was in a pocket that no one else was in. And really, I think other people after them kind of tried to achieve that to varying levels of success. But the cars, as I stated a little while ago, their music is still being played. Their yeah. their music is still popular. Uh, you know, when I talk to young people who are into music and I mention, you know, Just What I Needed or I mention My Best Friend's Girl, inevitably, even though a lot of younger people are into different types of music, they, they know the songs. They'll say, yeah. oh, 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 My Best Friend's Girlfriend. That's, yeah, yeah. So there's a recognition there. And I think that their music is going to carry. I think that as with, you know, of course, the uh, the altar that we all kneel before is the altar of the Beatles, and uh-huh. and uh, you know, uh, you know, their, their music in their own way is going to carry on in future generations, just like the Beatles' music did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I agree. One thing I was curious about, maybe this question isn't going anywhere. I don't know, but when it, when you think of Boston rock, especially in the seventies, you tend to think of bands like Aerosmith or Jay Giles or whatever. You sort of you know, uh, I don't know, like greasy rock and roll sloppy bands, you know, that just put on really great shows and really rock. Did the cars, were the cars just part of a completely different scene? Were they sort of the, uh, I don't know, did they have different fans? Were the people who were sort of getting behind all those bands the same people at that time? No, they they were in the middle of the scene. As a matter of fact, and this may sound funny to you, but I consider them a punk band. Are you really? Um, okay. I do, and I'll tell you why. Because there is a facet of rock and roll at that time that's labeled punk, you know, when you talk about uh, Ramones or Sex Pistols and things like that. But what punk really was was an attitude. You know, yeah. punk was reflected in your clothes. Punk was reflected in the way, you know, you carried yourself. Punk was an attitude. And the cars had punk to spare. They decided that they were going to uh, take this thing over to a certain place, and they never faltered. They just kept moving forward. You know, I, for example, um, you know, Rick Ocasek. Rick isn't your typical 
image of a rock star. No, you know? not at all. Yeah. Not at all. He's a very tall, lanky guy. I I I, I liken him uh, in terms of his overall physique to Jerry Ramone. Uh-huh. He was a very tall, lanky guy. But what Rick did was Rick embraced it. Rick said, yeah. "I'm going to create a look. I'm going to create a style. I'm going to um, really uh, own who I am." Yeah. And and he did it successfully, and it made a lot of the rest of us who felt out of step or who felt like misfits, it, it, it spoke to us. It really made us say, well, you know what? That's the way you approach it. That's the way you approach it. You just have to have the confidence to be yourself, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so okay. that's that. That's what I think about that. <laughs> well, good. Um, okay. I, I think, uh, can you think, is there any closing statement or closing memory or closing uh, thing that you want to say in regards to Rick or the band? Well, you know, I, I think just as, just as a mirror of how Rick could be in terms of the Boston music scene when you asked, mm-hmm. there's a, um, a fanzine that's been in Boston since the mid-'70s called the Boston Groupie News, and they're still around. They're online now. In 1981, after the Cars had become big international you know, record stars, uh-huh. um, they wanted to give Rick uh, a Medal of Honor, the Boston Groupie News Medal of Honor. Uh, and and he had them come down to his recording studio, and he accepted it gratefully, and he had pictures taken. And, you know, that was the type of thing he would do, and that's one of the reasons Boston loves him. And I I personally, you know, I, I'm kind of surprised. I mean, I Rick and I knew each other, as I said, through music. We weren't personal friends, but I... I'm feeling a profound loss at yeah. his passing, and it's yeah. much more than I could have ever anticipated, you know? Yeah. Um, I think he's... It, for me, it's like the same kind of void I felt when I heard that somebody like Jimi Hendrix or John Lennon yeah. had, had passed, you know? Uh, yeah. I think I think that there's something's been taken from us, and uh, I guess when all is said and done, I'm just grateful for the legacy that he left uh all of us can enjoy and we can remember him by, you know, in the, the way that the cars elevated Boston rock and roll on the world stage. You know, right. I'm just grateful to them and, um, you know, uh, I'm looking forward to, you know, uh, many more years, I hope, of yeah. listening to uh, their yeah. music. Yeah, you're here. All right, well, to close us out then, what uh, what song do you want us to play? What, if it's your favorite or the one you think deserves more attention or whatever, what song should we hear? You know, I, I I gave it a lot of thought actually, and uh, I I really wanted to pick a song I felt highlighted all of the aspects of the car sound, um, but I didn't necessarily want to pick one of their big hits. Uh-huh. And the song I kept going around back to is uh, from from the Shake It Up album. It's the song "I'm Not the One." Nice. Good you one. know, and it's yeah. got a wonderful performance on the guitar by Elliot Easton, who I think is a very undersung. Uh, guitar oh, hero. Right. He, he's a he's a wonderful guitar player. I've always loved his playing and uh, and um, Greg Hawks since. I mean, yep. you know th- that song, and it's a perfect song that Rick wrote. Uh, yeah. It's just got that Ocasek hook to it, where he yeah. y- y- gets you right out of the gate, and you just can't let go of it. So Good. that's what I go with. I'm not the one. Perfect, perfect, perfect choice. All right. Well, thanks, Brett. Thanks for uh, talking about it and helping us put, you know, Rick's death in context 
kind of historically, what he means, what he meant to the scene, where he came from, how he affected people. I thought you would be the right man for that job, and you absolutely were. Thanks for talking with me. Well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, uh, all of us uh, in Boston, uh, particularly uh, all of us that were in the music scene back then or in mourning, obviously, you know, we're, yeah. we're, um, we're it came as a shock. And, um, you know, I just hope uh, that his family uh, has the time to be able to heal and to move past yeah. this. It's just a terrible thing. That you'll be shooting for I'm not the one Who's coming back for more You have been through this too many times It's never clear what's happened to mine Okay. 